start. Let's open up with a word of prayer. that you be with us, that you help us to truly uh, study your word to understand you better, just so that we can increase our intimacy with you, so we can know the things you love, the things you hate, so that we can live our lives in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. We pray for this, and I also ask that you bring things to our remembrance as we're going through this particular lesson. Uh, Remind us of what's in your word, what we have studied, and help us to navigate your word in such a way that we can Think in a way that's logical. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Well, we are going to take a quick sidebar from the study of the rapture of the church. I've been having a lot of thoughts, and I've decided it's really important for us to answer the question about whether or not pets go to heaven. I'm totally kidding. We're not doing that. So we're studying the rapture of the church today. And this is going to be kind of a unique lesson because what we're trying, what I want to accomplish today is can we actually defend the rapture of the church? Can we actually grab our Bibles if somebody asks a question and be able to give them a biblical exposition of these three basic questions? Do we know what the rapture is? Can we know where to find it in the Bible? I've included as little information on these slides as possible because the goal right now is for us to take our Bibles out and actually go over this information in a way that's going to help us to know it for the future. So that being said, there are three things we're going to be going into today. Now, this is kind of important because in the past, we've actually spent more time on apologetics concerning the subject of the rapture of the church. And we've kind of diverted from this original point of study. We've been spending a lot of time defending what we think is a very biblical doctrine, one that's core to Christianity. What we have not done a lot of is this particular information. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at our Bibles and trying to analyze a thought process that would allow us to actually defend the doctrine. Or, easier said, simply explain it. So that's what we're going to be trying to accomplish today. So on that note, can we actually describe the rapture? Do we know the actual characteristics of the rapture and what the Bible actually says about it? Next, can we defend the timing of the rapture? When is it actually going to be taking place? The most hotly debated topic, what we spent the majority of our study on. This, and even so, it is still the hardest part to, to remember. Next, is this doctrine something that we can truly count on? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, is this something we can take to the bank and do we know it to a level of certainty that if someone were to say, are you absolutely sure that you're going to be raptured before the tribulation? We need to know. If we can't say that about a doctrine, then we really don't believe the doctrine. And that's not saying that we should do that about a doctrine we don't know enough about. What I'm suggesting is that we believe this is something the Bible teaches so conspicuously that we could, in fact, say with absolute certainty that we will be raptured before the tribulational period. Now, that's a lot of words. We have to figure out exactly how we defend that first, though. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's the first place we're going to begin today. 
Now, again, this uh, lesson is going to be more of an exercise in our studies. This is going to be kind of a summation of all the time we've put in, and we have put a lot of time in. So I'm expecting you guys to beat me there at this point. So First Thessalonians, before we actually go into our hot verses, the ones that are actually pertinent to the study, it's first important to remember what Thessalonica pertained. What about the Thessalonians do we have to know in order to really defend the doctrine of the rapture? Well, first of all, if you remember, we have to remember that this was an incredibly young church. We're talking, Paul went there, probably sent them a letter within six months, probably sent the second letter within a year of that. So we're talking about close back-to-back letters. What's more is that Paul is writing to them for several purposes. Most people argue that it's between four and six purposes. J. Vernon McGee actually argued that there were three purposes of the book of First Thessalonians. I tend to think about six. But if we were to read through the book, the first thing we would note is that he was writing to them to praise them for the response that he got from Timothy about them. Specifically when he says, if, you, if you're looking in your Bible, um, <clears throat> starting in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. So that's the basic framework that he's initiating with them. He's saying, good job. Your faith has actually given us a good response. We actually have your reputation, and it's a good one. And we, we will learn later that wasn't the case with the Corinthian church, right? It was quite the opposite. But what he says, verse 9, is, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And that is a drastic change in lifestyle. What's more, he now says, In light of that, and to wait for his son, for, for the son of God, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now we're going to pause there because this is incredibly important. I'm going to turn back. You guys keep your hand on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm just going back to the book of John because this is something we're going to do um, almost habitually as we go through this study. I want to keep reminding us of the framework with what he just said. So what exactly did he just say? He says, we are to wait for his son from heaven. Okay, so we know who we're waiting for and where they're coming from. Whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Well, Jesus also made a promise in John 14 that said, In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house with the dwelling places. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So, okay. So when he's telling them this, that's what he's reaching into. Because anytime you see that type of statement, 
you have to remember that if he doesn't explain it there, he explained it somewhere beforehand. So he's reaching back into revealed scriptural truth when he says that, into the revealed word of Jesus. And this would have been something they would have been aware of. Now, again, we've talked about 1 Thessalonians several times. Every chapter has a reference to the coming of the Lord at the end of the chapter. And the reason that the chapter divisions are notated as such is because what they're trying to do is divide on the basis of that theme as they're going through. Now, where do we find out about the rapture? Well, the Thessalonians had a question that they tried to ask Paul. They tried to ask what they really wanted to know is what's going to happen to those of us who fall asleep in lieu of the fact that there's going to be a rapture. What happens to them if they're dead? We, we don't know anything about this. We know that Jesus is coming again for those alive, but you've never explained to us what happens to those who fell asleep. So what does Paul say? Well, if you go to chapter 4, and I, I would invite you to turn there, we're going to start in verse 13. And Paul says, But we do not want you, the Thessalonian believers, to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, so the entire hinge point of his argument that he's about to make is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Usually means that whatever is going to follow is absolutely certain, right? So in any case, he says, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Which people who have fallen asleep? The last verse. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus who are going to be brought with him. What does he say next? He says that for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So that's the basic, I would say the basic structure of the rapture that the Bible gives us. So we have a few components here. One, we have two, technically three parties that are included in this. We have those who are asleep and those who are alive. But the thing about those who are alive and asleep is that it specifies that these two groups are in Christ. Now, that's different because that would exclude several different parties. That would exclude Old Testament saints. That would exclude, obviously, unbelieving unbelievers from the Old Testament. It would also exclude those who are not in Christ in the age of the church. So that's technically three groups of people with three different degrees of revelation that they received over the course of their lifetimes. So he's saying that those two groups and the Christ are the three parties involved in this. What's more is he's talking about a descent of the Lord himself, but he doesn't say that he descends to the earth. What's more, he, he just simply descends from heaven with a shout. There's a voice of an archangel. The dead in Christ are the first to rise. It could indicate that they're rising from the dead. It could also indicate that they're rising to the Lord. doesn't really matter. Either way, the same thing is accomplished. Next, then we, again, Paul's expecting this, who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord. And what's more is that even in the midst of this event, which is quite spectacular and also distinct, because if this were talking about the, uh, the second coming spoken of in Matthew 24, Christ had already revealed that. 
So why would they be asking about that? They're asking about a different event here. They're asking about the rapture. And this is supposed to be used as a comfort to the Thessalonian believers. So when we're explaining this particular verse out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if we're wanting to give them the framework for this particular uh, event, that's how we have to frame it. We have to put it in the context of the book. Because if you take it out of the context, which is precisely how a post uh, tribulationalist has to do it, as we've been discussing for the last eight or nine weeks, you would you could basically try to apply this to the second coming. But that's not what he's talking about. That being said, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. Told you there's going to be a lot of page turning. We're going to go through each one of these one at a time, making our way back to the book of John. So 1 Corinthians. Now, basic structure of 1 Corinthians. Um, this is not the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Some have argued that it's the third letter. Others argue that it's the second letter. I would argue more about the second letter. It might be the third letter in correspondence. There's some disagreement about that. Um, but basically, the framework that we need to remember that this is not the first letter that Paul wrote. What is Paul trying to do in this letter? Well, he's trying where Romans is more theological. He's trying to give them a, like a scholarly theological representation of certain parts of God, mankind, Israel, daily life in light of those things. In this book, it's not so much scholarly as it is pastoral. So what he's doing is he's writing a correction to a reprobate church. And praise the Lord, we can read 2 Corinthians and know that a lot of this advice was taken strongly. But in the midst of this, that's what Paul is trying to do. Now, there were a lot of problems going on in Corinth. Um, they had an issue where they didn't really believe that the spiritual world is, um, I'm sorry, the physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good. That's the basic framework they had. And so Paul, in the midst of these things, talking about the resurrection of Christ, talking about the Lord's table, making his way through the book, he really has to emphasize the legitimacy of the resurrection. Because the resurrection is our focus, the church's focus looking forward. Our expectations about every future event are hinged on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And especially our inclusion in those future events that we are looking forward to, whether it's the kingdom, the rapture, whatever. It's all hinged on the fact that Jesus proved he was the king of God's own choosing. So that being said, that's the framework that we have. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is trying to show them that um, Gnostic dualism isn't something they should really be trying to do in their daily lives. So what does he do? Well, if we actually start in verse 20 of chapter 15, that's where we're going to be beginning today. And we'll read up to 41. No, we're not going to go that far. <laughs> we'll just read the first three verses. So starting in verse 20, it says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But to each in his own order. This is so crucial. Christ, the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and the Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So there are a couple things, a couple things on this. It says in verse 25, 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So there are a couple things that we really need to keep in mind. If you're listening to a Kingdom Now theologian, they will argue that, well, it says in the Bible that he's been, he's been placed uh, in heaven next to Jesus. Well, they do that mostly because a lot of them don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because if you can try to make it so Jesus is reigning on David's throne right now, then all we're waiting for at this point is the second coming. And they try to force that into the framework of this text. What is Paul actually trying to accomplish? He's trying to accomplish two things. One, giving glory to God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And second, showing that our resurrection, which is still yet future, is so certain because we know that the resurrection of Jesus was certain. So that's the basic lens that we're looking at through this verse. Now, if you fast forward to verse 50, he then speaks on the subject of our resurrection when he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I, will tell, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So what is he actually trying to prove? Well, he's trying to say that not only are you going to be resurrected, it's not going to be resurrected into a spirit. You're going to have a physical resurrected body. That would have been big news in Corinth because they looked at the physical realm as evil and the spiritual realm as good. So it would almost seem like backwards thinking that the Lord was saying that we were going to have physical resurrected bodies. So what do we actually learn about the rapture from here, though? Well, we learn, first of all, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, implicitly, is that this is a resurrection. And what's more is that the mystery is that there are going to be some, again, what Paul says, who are alive and remain at the time of this resurrection. And we also know that this is going to happen almost instantly, in a moment. The Greek word is atmos, which is like an indivisible particle of time. So that being said, and we also know that this makes perfect sense because what's happening in the rapture? We're actually being taken to the Father's house. If we're being taken to the Father's house, where's that Father's house? It's in heaven. Can we really go there in our sin-soaked bodies? No, we can't. Um, and so that's kind of the, the lens that we get from 1 Corinthians. He's trying to answer those questions. The next place we're going to be going to is John chapter 14. So if you could turn with me to the Gospel of John, that's our, that's our next point. And the reason that we're doing this, the reason that I'm going through this information is because it's really easy to get lost as we're going through a lot of the more technical data. Um, I got bored of talking about Tereoek the first time we talked about it. Um, it. It was worse the second time. Super important to know, like very important to be able to understand, to be able to, to, to talk about with somebody, especially a skeptic, which is why we spent some time on it but definitely less fun than just expositing God's word. So, Gospel of John. What is the context of the Gospel of John? Well, John is trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, somebody that you can believe on, someone you can trust in for your salvation. So he focuses on several miracles of Jesus' ministry in order to accomplish that goal. 
In the midst of this, we actually find this segment, which is the upper room discourse. And that's where we're going to be spending our time today. So in the midst of this upper room discourse, there's a portion where Judas is present and then Judas is sent away. And then he's simply just addressing the disciples that actually trusted in him. Because a disciple is not a technical term for believer. It is something that could refer to an unbeliever or a believer. It just means a a follower. Like I would be a disciple of uh, electrical classes if I go to an electrical class. Because I'm trying to learn from the teacher. That's why they referred to Jesus as teacher, a lot of the disciples. So, and I say disciples, not just the 12. I'm talking about the hundreds of disciples that Jesus encountered upon his ministry. So just kind of keep that in mind. So Jesus is comforting those disciples, those believing disciples that were simply left after that. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Which again is reminding us that believing in God is believing in Jesus Christ because they're a synonymous term. Because he was acting out the will of the Father throughout his life. He the one of the underlying themes in the book of John is where he's developing and showing us what perfect fellowship with God looks like. That being said, in verse two, he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, if what I'm saying is true, again, he's hinging what he's saying on the truthfulness of his prior statements. If I go and prepare a place for you, as I just promised in the past sentence, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Of course, Thomas disappoints us and says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So what are the things we learned about this sentence? Well, first of all, uh, believing in Jesus is believing in the Father, which is super significant if you are a believing Jew in the first century that is trusting in Jesus as your king. Because Messiah and king would be somewhat synonymous in this respect, especially with his descendancy from David. Next, Jesus says that in my Father's house are many dwelling places. The word for dwelling place refers to a temporary dwelling place for a purpose. And if it were not so, I would have told you. Again, if this were not so, I would have informed you. The purpose of this is informing the disciples. Next, I'm actually going. Jesus is promising to go to prepare a place for them. Not just preparing a place for them, but the whole point of that first Uh, first verse and the second verse that followed is that he's preparing a place for them in heaven. Okay. It's, it's a building statement. It's building up to the point that he's getting to in verse three. And in verse three, he says that if what I say is true, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Again, that's the promise that he's making. He's promising to take them to the place he prepared for them in the Father's house. And then what's more is that he actually gives us the condition for being there. What does he say in verse 6? He says that Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
and then goes to speak about the oneness between him and the Father. So that's the basic framework of the Gospel of John as it pertains to this particular verse. So when we're looking at this, when we're trying to defend what actually is the rapture, well, we have our three verses. That's why we focus on these three. We go to John 14 to learn that it's actually in the Father's house, where he's taking us to the Father's house. We go to 1 Corinthians to find that this is actually a resurrection, where we're getting our resurrected bodies at this point. And we and the fact that it's going to happen in a moment. And then we go to 1 Thessalonians to figure out the order of events as those two, 1 Corinthians and John, factor into the grand scheme of 1 Thessalonians. So that's how we would define the rapture. That's how we would analyze what the Bible says about it. What did we not see in those three verses? Well, we didn't see that he's promising that he's going to be judging the nations directly afterward. He didn't say anything about Armageddon. He didn't say anything about immediately establishing his kingdom. He didn't say any of those things because those things happen later on. And we know that. So again, that's the first half of the argument. That's the first half of our explanation to the 10-year-old child who asked us, what is the rapture? The second half pertains to when it's going to take place. Can we defend its timing? Is that something we know how to do? How would we defend the timing of the rapture? One verse. I just need somebody to come with one verse. This is an actual question. Revelation 3.10. Good answer. We spent three weeks on that. All right. So Revelation 3.10. Let's go there. Let's see how that factors into our study. I'll give, I'll give the other two as a throwaway. So Revelation 3.10. What does he actually promise the church of Philadelphia? He promises that I will keep you from the hour of testing. Did he say from the testing? No, that would actually be a contradiction in the Bible. He says the hour of testing. Which hour? Which hour of testing is he keeping us from? The hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. We're in the book of Revelation. What hour could he possibly be talking about? Well, he's talking about the tribulational period. Why would he promise just the church of Philadelphia this? Well, that's a ridiculous question because he didn't. It is a promise to every church, just like the promise in 1 Thessalonians gives us the promise that we will be included in the rapture being in Christ. This is a promise to the church. Again, what is the church? It is a body of believers beginning at Pentecost who trusted in Jesus Christ for their Savior and that body of believers expands and continues expanding until the moment of the rapture. The rapture is simply the bow on top of the present. It's the frosting on top of the cupcake. That is just the end point of the church. And so when these letters are written to these churches, they would also apply to us. Just like when uh, Paul says, don't go to the temple prostitutes at night in 1 Corinthians, we should probably also not do that, right? Again, not super applicable in this church because we're all perfect. But in a different church, that would probably factor in pretty easily. Saying that tongue-in-cheek. Not all of us are perfect in this room. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so where would we go to figure out the next portions? Like, that's just one verse. Okay, you took one verse out of context to defend your rapture study. Joe, what, where would you find another verse? Because I'm not going to make a theology out of one verse. Well, technically, you could make a theology out of one verse. Because every word in the Word of God is inspired, profitable for teaching, and you could, you could make a theology out of half of a verse. 
But thankfully, the Lord doesn't force us to do that. He gives us more information. He gives us more detailed information. So what book of the Bible, we've already been there, would factor into our study about the timing of the rapture? I don't know, but I would guess probably 1 Thessalonians because we, se- we seem to spend a lot of time there. So 1 Thessalonians, we already read this today. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 1. Paul says, For they themselves, those who were reporting about the Thessalonian church, report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Okay, what is he not talking about there? He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about hell. Um, because we're talking about the wrath to come. What is, the, what is the subject of 1 Thessalonians? Well, there are a few things that he talks about. We already talked about the fact that it pertains to the coming of the Lord. But there's also mention towards the bookends, of 1 Thessalonians about the tribulational period. We see that highlighted in chapter 5, which is where we're going now. So in chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. Now, oh, what what is this word now? Super easy to gloss over. Well, we talked about this before. This is when he switches subjects to a not completely distinct subject, but a related subject with a distinction. That's what the Greek word for now means. Now, we're just remembering that we don't have the Greek on hand to tell the 10-year-old. 10-year-old doesn't care. Um, it's basic and implicit in the grammar that's used even in an English Bible. So that being said, now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, we have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Oh, wait, what is he actually saying here? Well, he says, you have no need of what? of anything to be written to you. Didn't we just talk about the coming of the Lord? Oh, wait, maybe it's a different coming. Maybe there's a distinction implicitly here in the Bible. Okay, that's kind of cool. Let's keep reading. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day, and we are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, for those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, even as a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build uh, build up one another, just as you are also doing. So a few things there. He's making a distinction. When he talks about the thief of the night motif, he is referring to something distinct. He's reaching back into what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 and 25. Um, What... This is actually the biggest critique against pre-tribulationalism. They say, well, or not even pre-tribulationalism, a literal interpretation of Daniel 9.27. As they said, well, this is going to be a thief in the night. This is going to be something nobody knows about. So how, how can we know exactly when Jesus is going to be coming, when nobody's going to know? Well, uh, we don't know when he's going to come for the rapture. But when it, this thief in the night idea pertains more to 
unbelievers not expecting a predicted judgment than it does about believers being able to calculate the time of the coming of the Lord as it pertains to the second coming. What do we know about the first coming? Well, we know that there was mathematical precision used in Daniel 24 through 27 where you could calculate it out from 444 BC up until the moment, the exact moment that Jesus came in as presenting himself as the king of Israel. And what do we know? We know that there's a condition on the last seven years of the 490 years spoken of. So we have seven mathematical years. We have no literal reason in heaven or hell as to why they would not be literal years. And so we choose to trust God at his word, especially when he's already given us the answer. He's already shown us that he's using actual literal precision with these, with these prophecies. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, we should be thinking about Noah. We should be thinking about God telling Noah, you have 120 years until judgment. And Noah was known as, we, we learn about this from Peter, a preacher, somebody who is proclaiming the word of God. I bet you he was telling them when the judgment of God was going to come. Of course, they didn't believe him. and We know what happened. But they weren't unaware. It's not a stretch to say that those in, the, in that century were not unaware of the coming judgment. Yet it surprised them. It surprised them like a thief in the night. So the same thing will happen towards the end of the tribulational period. You'll have an entire world of unbelievers who will have thousands of years of biblical history and writings and millions and millions and millions of Bibles and books and commentaries written about a subject, and they will still not know. And they will still be caught by surprise when the Lord comes. So now, that's the basic thrust of this. But we are promised, aside from that, that he has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Why is he making a distinction between wrath and salvation? Because what is the purpose of this time of wrath? It is a time of testing. What kind of testing is he referring to? He's talking about revealing the true character of that which is being tested. He already knows that. We're already blood-bought saints. We already have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us. We are declared righteous. It's our legal standing. So there would be no reason to determine the legitimacy of our righteousness. So that being said, we'll keep moving. Are we ever told that we are to be expecting our Lord to come for us? Now, this is going to be the hardest part of this as we're reaching back into our... uh, our thought banks and trying to figure out how would we defend this. What I'm asking is, can we defend eminency? A lot harder to do from memory because we only need three verses to figure out timing and three verses to figure out what the rapture is. So how would we figure out the imminent coming of the Lord? When are we ever told to do that? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. I like 1 Corinthians because it's the easiest to remember because you're basically looking at the bookends of the letter to 1 Corinthians or the letter to Corinth. So if you look at chapter one, and you start in verse four, Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ is confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What does the revelation mean? It means the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. When is he going to be unveiled to the people that he's addressing in Corinth? The rapture. What are they doing? They're awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Antichrist. No, it's not the Antichrist. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to. Now let's go to the other side of 1 Corinthians. What does he say in verse 22 of chapter 16? Well, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And what does he proclaim to the Corinthians? He proclaims Maranatha. What does that actually mean? It was a telltale sign of inclusion in their church system in the first century. It means, come Lord Jesus, come, or our Lord, come. It's a command. It's a, it's a hope. It's like me praying at the end today that, Lord, we welcome you. We, we want to be raptured. We want your coming to be as fast as possible. We ask that you expedite that process. It's the same thing. And so when he's saying that, it shows not just the presence of a hope that the Lord will come, but the commonality of it. That's really what's being shown here by this word. And we, we spent an entire day studying the word Maranatha back when we first started this. I have no idea where it is in the study, but if you, if you want it, you can look back at it. So where's the next place that we would go? I would go to the book of Philippians. Now, one of the one verse that's really important to, if you can, commit to memory is Philippians 3, verse 20. That's where we're going to be going next. So in chapter 3, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What did he just summarize in this one verse? He summarized the truth that we have in, first of all, if you read it again, 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. He's talking about the resurrection. Again, not the raising from the dead, but simply a resuscitation to a heavenly body. What does he also talk about? He talks about the fact that our citizenship, our legal citizenship, because we're aliens on this planet, is in heaven, from which we are expecting Jesus to come. Again, such an important verse to remember, but the important thing that I'm trying to highlight here is that this is something that we are eagerly waiting for. Again, it's, you can't make an argument from silence. Again, that's a logical fallacy to try to make an argument for a theology. But the fact that the entire New Testament is completely silent about us waiting to be included amongst the great trials and tribulations of the time of Jacob's trouble, and it is so highlighting the fact that we are eagerly awaiting our Savior who's coming from heaven to take us to heaven— I mean, it's, it's obvious. It's, it's, not something that's, it's not something to debate. It's something to simply just trust in. And so that's the difference. So let's go, to, let's go to our T's. The next one will be in 1 Timothy. Since we've kind of already made mention, you could basically go through 1 Thessalonians, just read the end of every chapter. Um, so if you need a lot of information in a short amount of time, that's the fastest way to get it. But we've already done that. So we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 right at the end of 1 Timothy. 
It says, and let's go ahead and start in verse 11. It says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandments without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, great. So again, what are we looking towards? We're looking to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the appearing, this thing that's being told about. Now, I'm cheating a little bit in the fact that I am notoriously uh, organized with, I have, I think, 12 different colored highlighters, and one of them is for the coming of the Lord. So I'm just looking towards the end of 1 Timothy and looking for my highlighter color. So I don't even remember necessarily the verse number. So I'm kind of cheating on this one. I admit that because we're in church. But let's go through the T's to the book of Titus. Just helps me because then I just need to remember the book and generally where the verse is located. So in the book of Titus, this is going to be towards the second chapter. It says in verse 9, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Two would be better rendered as four. He's brought salvation for all men. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. Um, Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, Looking for what? The blessed hope in the appearing of our glory, of the the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So a couple things. Why would he want us to be pure? Well, it goes back into the marriage motif we talked about in John chapter 14. Because what is the bride supposed to do while she awaits the groom to take her back to his house that he has prepared for her? Well, we are to remain pure. It is the time where we are to set ourselves apart for the groom. That is our purpose as the church. That's why we're given all of these reminders to remain pure in this time period. So what is he actually saying? We're to deny ungodliness. We're to abstain from sin. We're to, if we're a bondservant, if we're a slave, we are to serve with all righteousness, godliness, and humility, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of our Lord, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. That is, again, the application. Because, again, we're not waiting in a vacuum. We're waiting in lieu of the fact that we know he's going to be coming forth. So let's quickly turn to 1 Peter. This one's at the beginning of 1 Peter. We try to make it easy. So First Peter, let's start in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, 
For a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What happens when we get raptured? What's probably the first event post-rapture? The Bema Seat, Judgment Seat of Christ, where we are standing before the Lord and our deeds, good, bad, ugly, whatever, are measured and tested by fire to determine were they done by right motive? Were they done in light of the fact that we were doing it selflessly with humility, not for our own gain? Again, not a single mention of the coming of the Lord is, first of all, preceded by a mention of the Antichrist, which is super pertinent for our study, but even more so, more relevant to us right now, is not mentioned with a reference to why we are to be looking. We're to be reminded of the future because it should change our actions in the present. Let's go to the book of James really quick. We have just a couple verses to look through, and then we're going to be summing up. So in the book of James, if you go kind of towards the end of the book of James, it says in the exhortational part of the letter, starting in verse 7, that therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus said, or John the Baptist said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near, was he saying that the kingdom of heaven was there? No, he meant it was simply imminent, that there was simply a condition. Our condition right now is Jesus has to come back, in which he hasn't given us a time frame. But that doesn't mean that the nearness of his coming is far out. It also doesn't mean that it's super close. We have no idea, which is part of the reason why it's so important to live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him in the meantime. We will close with a, a verse from 1 John. So if you can pop over there into chapter 2, it's right on the bridge between the end of chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3. That's, that's the way I remember it. And so he says in verse 28, now really quickly before I say this, what is the purpose of 1 John? There are two purposes, two general purposes. People find other ones, but there are two heavily emphasized purposes. One is to guard guard against false teachers. And the other is to figure out how do I live in such a way that I can be in fellowship with a holy God. And this is where he extrapolates all of that information he pulled from his gospel prior to writing this. In fact, I would argue in my personal highly debated opinion that this was written at the same time or after the book of Revelation. Because a lot of the ideas that are referenced in the letters of the seven churches are actually re-emphasized in this particular letter. For another time, it says in verse 28, though, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we will be called children of God and such we are for this reason. The world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
<coughs> Sorry. So what is he actually promising here? This is the last thing we're going to say, and then we're going to close. What is he actually arguing for? Well, he's showing us that the coming of the Lord is a purifying hope. The fact that we're looking at that future should have a reverberating effect on us in the present. But the nishpen of this entire study is this. That's what we're looking towards. We're looking at his coming because we know he's coming for us. There, yes, there's a purifying hope. Yes, he's making a reference to 1 Corinthians 15 and the fact that we're going to have resurrected bodies when he appears. But the most important part, as it pertains to what we're trying to answer here, which is how do we know that this is something we should even care about as the church, is because he's very simply emphasizing this in this particular point. So when we're trying to answer what is the rapture of the church? We should be able to roughly be able to give an idea just from the Bible. We shouldn't need, uh, we shouldn't say, hey, give me a quick 30 minutes. I'm going to go grab my prophecy notebook where I read, wrote everything out. We should be like, well, I know God's word. I can generally think about the purposes of these books. I can remember that if I go to 1 Timothy, go to the end of that, I, I can go to 1 Peter. He mentions it at the beginning. I can go to all of these different books or if, if you're ever in doubt, just go to First, Corinth, or First Thessalonians and look at end of every chapter. You'll, you'll find something. Um, what I'm trying to get across is that's not, I, I, I'm not remembering a lot of the other ones. I'm sure we, we had a big list. Uh, another one we didn't go through, end of Revelation 22. There's an exhortation at the very end of that letter where he makes so many references to the coming of the Lord and the nearness of that coming. We probably should have read that one, but we're out of time. So I encourage you to read that in your own time, but just kind of keep that in mind when we're looking and we're trying to defend a doctrine. If you can't defend it or explain it in the way an eight-year-old or a four-year-old can understand, you really don't know the doctrine. Um, if you can't defend it from the Bible, do you even know it's a biblical doctrine? Those are thoughts that we should be taking into consideration, and that's why I decided to do that as this particular lesson, rather than jumping into uh, the pre-wrath rapture just yet. That's going to be the next thing that I, that I teach on next time I'm teaching. But just kind of keep that in mind. That's the framework for why we're even studying the rapture in the first place. It's so that we can know it to a level of certainty that we will be able to explain it to a child. Because those are the, that's the level of scholarship you're probably going to have to explain to an adult too. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you more specifically for the promises that you've given us in your word. The fact that there are so many investments and returns on investments for studying your word in detail, for knowing what your word says, for being able to know specifically the things pertaining to your coming. We're able to extrapolate that information and apply it to our own lives and know that if we trust that you're going to come for us, we can look ahead towards the future and we can change our actions, our thoughts, our words, and our everything in the present to reflect the future that we know is absolutely certain. Um, we pray, we praise you for this, especially knowing that even in, even right now, the experiences that we have on a daily basis are less certain than that which you tell us about the future. We read about that in the writings of Peter. That is actually more certain for us to study your word than to look at our experiences. We praise you for this. We're, we're grateful, your provision, your faithfulness, you're, you're a wonderful God. And I ask that you help us to really fine-tune our lives in such a way that we're able to really reflect the truth that we know about you. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.